Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <coughs> oh, there are cards on the table. On it. <clears throat> So as I said, the the title of of the talk is The Lion's Roar. I'll keep you in suspense for a little while. We have uh, very little control over our experience. Have you noticed? You come in here to sit, or you sit at home, First in the meditative aspect, we'll see. You sit down and you say, oh, I really want to be mindful. And you're not. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, Or I really want to um, be open to all the, the feelings inside and it's just, you feel like you're overwhelmed. Or... Whatever. Life does not cooperate with us in the meditation and also um, outside the meditation. Just like in the meditation. The meditation, formal practice, you just kind of, uh, a little crucible for reality. And outside in reality, as my teacher Joseph Goldstein says, Anything can happen at any time. Or, there's a a line I love, fortunes change quicker than the swish of a horse's tail. Everything is fine and all of a sudden an earthquake hits and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands are gone, just like that. Or, Everything seems to be going fine. Think you got your life together, and the economy crashes, and savings are wiped out. A friend of mine, one of the people at Spirit Rock, uh, one of the caretakers there, uh, this beautiful guy, Clay, who's been um, with Spirit Rock for years and years, uh, oh, last summer, he was in a car with, uh, with another staff person just turning onto, I think it was onto uh, Sir Francis Drake, and a truck had hit them. And um, he was in the hospital for three months with many broken bones and lung collapsed, and it was like, He's amazing. Right now, he's, he's just, he's amazing. He's like, what, 76 or something like that. And he's, he looks more vital than I am right, right now. Um, but he was saying, you know, you just never know. Just like that, one's life can change. He was lucky. And then there's the other side of the coin where you feel like you're, you're just, nothing is working. You're in the pits, and uh, it just seems that... Uh, it's just going nowhere, and you 
meet the love of your life in the middle of it. Or get in touch with a, with a truth that opens you up in a whole other way that, uh, that in, in one moment you realize all of that hard stuff was worth it because I learned a lesson that can deepen my compassion that I never would have otherwise. Anything can happen at any time. And this can be quite unsettling in a world of change. We, we want security, we want safety, we want refuge. But the unknown, which is every moment that hasn't come yet, the unknown, by nature is unpredictable, by definition is unpredictable. And yet we try so hard to figure out, to get a sense of what's going to happen so we can, we can somehow find some safety in this unpredictable world. And because of it, often we can have some vigilance about what's going to happen next, like we're Mm, warding off negativity with our scanning the horizon. This is how our, as, as we've talked about before, this is how we're wired up. Our brain is wired up to be vigilant. If you're familiar with neuroscience, this almond-shaped little thing in the center of our brain, the amygdala, which looks out for what could go wrong. We need that. We need it so to survive as a species to survive. But sometimes, often, it works overtime, just kind of like scanning for what could go wrong next. And as my friend uh, Rick Hansen says, the, the brain is like uh, Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. And so we, we can sometimes um, be more focused on, on what could go wrong. And that worry is, uh, is very hard to, to find a place of ease and relaxation and connection with that, um, that kind of mindset. <clears throat> and so we kind of get lost in our attempt to control experience, our fears and our worries, which kind of knock us off our balance and ease and often create the very problems that we're trying to avoid. I mentioned here a number of, a, couple of, a few months ago about this experience when I was a kid at learning to ride the bicycle, remember that one? As my, my dad was teaching me to ride a bike and letting go of the, the first day without training wheels, and he said, okay, there you go, and all by myself on a Sunday morning down my block, and then in the distance I could see very far away people with the baby carriage there. <laughs> and my mind saying, don't hit the baby carriage. <laughs> Don't hit the baby carriage. And it was like radar right into the baby carriage. That's what we do with our life. 
I hope that doesn't happen. Please don't make that happen. And we kind of get out of our rhythm, and that's the thing that fills our reality. Or worrying. I, I've, I've mentioned here that my mom is a worrier. And by her own admission, she, when she doesn't have something to worry about, then she really gets worried. You know? It's like you're not putting in your time. Um, here's uh, from uh, Danny Gol Daniel Goldman um, on the problem with worry. Daniel Goldman from Emotional Intelligence. New solutions and fresh ways of seeing a problem do not typically come from worrying especially chronic worry. Instead of coming up with solutions to these potential problems, worriers typically simply ruminate on the danger itself, immersing themselves in a low-key way in the dread associated with it while staying in the same rut of thought. Because worry and fear contract the mind and we can't see wise options when we're vigilant and focused on what could go wrong. <clears throat> so in this world of impermanence, both the external reality out of our control, in, the, in Buddhism there's this, this teaching of the eight worldly conditions or eight vicissitudes, the vicissitudes of life. Pleasure, pain, loss, gain, fame, shame, praise, blame. We are going back and forth trying to avoid what could go wrong and hanker for what could go right, and it's exhausting. And then there's the internal reality, where the mind has no, no um, place to stand. How many moods, how many thoughts, how many moods have you had today? Well, I've had one downer of a mood today, you might say. So maybe you've had a good day, but you've probably had many ups and downs throughout the day. How many thoughts have you had today? Thousands and thousands and thousands of thoughts. And each one can come along like little fish hooks with bait saying, believe me, okay? <laughs> I'm real. And we do bite the bait a whole lot. So with this roller coaster ride, there's not a real security to be found. There's a, one of my favorite sayings uh, from the Hindu tradition pointing to how fragile our centeredness is. Even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe from lying. Just one thought away, getting snagged. <clears throat> the corollary to that, the good news, is no matter how lost you are, coming back and seeing clearly is just one thought away. So it's a binary function. It's not all bad news. But it seems to be just. Um, uh, on the whims of life, one would say. So where's the refuge? Any holding on 
in a world of change is dukkha, is suffering. As Joseph Goldstein says, holding on in a world of change is like rope burn, not realizing that we're getting burned as the as we're holding on for, for dear life, we're <laughs> So the Buddha, in his wisdom, said not only to accept change, but to reflect on it over and over. Not only to resign ourselves to the fact that these bodies can get sick, we will die, we will lose those near to us and dear to us, but to reflect on it every day. We've gone through the five reflections here. I'm not beyond aging, sickness, death, everything near and dear to me will be separated from me, and I'm the owner of my actions. He said, think about this every day, not to morbidly depress yourself, but to really see the truth that this is not a refuge. We can't find a refuge in our ideas of how things should be, because they'll change. And what really throws us off is the fact that change can happen in a moment. Sometimes if we're prepared for it, then there's the, the system can handle it. You know, if, if somebody's going in for uh, a procedure, a medical procedure, and they know the story, they can somehow prepare, and there's, there can be a, a kind of gearing up and a wise understanding, or even if somebody is at the end of their, of their life and there's time and they've done some practice to kind of hold it in a, in a different way, that when it's not a shock to the system, we can somehow integrate experience a bit better. And so as we're practicing, and realizing that anything can happen at any time, just seeing how quickly the mind can go in one direction or another. It's like we're preparing ourselves not to be shocked, realizing, oh, that's how life is. <clears throat> in Zen practice, you know, they don't often, they don't end a sitting with a sweet sound of a bell. If you've done some Zen practice, often, they take wooden clackers and go like that. You don't get so attached to that sweet meditation ah, and know that that will bring you out of it when you know this can happen at any time. You're trained to let go in a moment of that sweet, delicious stillness. This is good practice.
Alan Watts wrote this wonderful book, The Wisdom of Insecurity. This is our refuge. If suffering is caused by holding on and trying to control, as the Buddha said, freedom comes in letting go of the control that we never had in the first place. <clears throat> now this is easier said than done. I got this lesson the first time I did a retreat. I was so fortunate. I, uh, I had this very delicious, sweet meditation. It was the first time it never mattered if the bell rang. You ever have that meditation? Doesn't matter if the bell rings. You know it's very cool at that point. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, what happens when you have that meditation is what happened to me. Ah, that was so amazing. I couldn't wait the next time to go back to the cushion. Oh, yeah, let's go for it again. And it wasn't there. And I was kind of frustrated. In fact, very frustrated as the next couple of days I tried so hard to get back to that meditation. And I had every experience but sweet sittings. And I went into the interview with, uh, with Joseph and I said, look, I had it a couple of days ago and I lost it. How do I get it back? Uh, and he, he told me, and this was the, the great blessing. Oh, yeah, I know that one. He said, yeah? He said, yeah. I, I was at one point in my practice in, in, in India, just so sweet. Every time I'd sit, my body was filled with light. My mind was clear. And then I came back to the States for couple of months knowing I'd be going back to, to practice uh, after a little while. And I went back to practice and I sat down. My mind was like mud and my body was like twisted steel. And then he looked at me and he said, I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience. And then he further said, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. Thank you very much. Thank you. So as we see how out of control reality is, we get to understand the underlying principles of how to work with it, how to work with things so we don't create more frustration and confusion and um, disappointment and fight life, we learn the lion's roar, which in Tibetan teachings states the fearless proclamation that everything is workable. The fearless proclamation 
that no matter what the situation, instead of running from it, instead of wishing it were different, that there is something to be learned, something to awake in. This is another way of taking refuge in the Dharma. You know, when we, we end the sitting and we, we say, Budang saranang gachami, damang saranang gachami, sangang saranang gachami. I take refuge in the Buddha, in the possibility of awakening. I take refuge in the Dharma, and I take refuge in the Sangha, the community. Taking refuge in the, in the Dharma is seeing that in every moment, life is giving us a gift, is giving us just what we need to wake up. If we get our fears activated, ah, this is a chance to work with fear. If we find ourselves disappointed because life didn't cooperate with us, oh, this is a chance to work with disappointment. If we find that we are, our hearts are open and we are filled with love, oh, this is a chance to understand that capacity or a quality of presence or calm or confusion. It's all part of life. And so right within our fear lies the possibility of fearlessness. Right within our being humbled lies a humility that opens us up to letting go of how we think things should be, a vastness in our humility. Being humbled is one thing, opening up to a humility that says, well, as in the, in the Christian tradition, or the, yeah, not my will, but thy will, it's really surrendering Surrendering, a deep surrendering to what life is offering us. So how does this mysterious transformation take place? As we practice what we're doing here, as we see for ourselves moment after moment that Everything is changing. This understanding of impermanence, of anicca, the impermanent nature of things, loosens our grip. And this understanding, it's one thing to get it here. You can read any book on basic Buddhism, and you will see everything changes. Okay, I got it. Or, oh, yeah, I really do know everything changes. Yeah, my life changed from last week to this week or last year to this year. But really getting it, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and in our bodies, we have to put in our time to understand that. Because as much as we know it, we still don't believe it. 
We don't believe it when we get surprised and saying, that wasn't supposed to happen. Life, life threw me a curveball. That's not supposed to happen. Anything can happen at any time. The first time I really kind of got this, not just as an idea, but as a lived experience, uh, it was on my um, second retreat in, uh, it was in 1976 in Toledo, Washington, where I just, I wasn't getting it. And everything wasn't working, and I was sitting, I couldn't sit, I was walking, I couldn't walk, everybody around was a phony, I thought I was kind of held captive in, in some kind of a, well I knew it wasn't a cult because I'd been in it for the, for the last couple of years, but it just was not working and I said, what the heck am I doing here? What are we all doing here? Has that ever crossed your mind? <laughs> what are we doing here? And I, I tried to sit, I couldn't sit, and I tried to walk, I couldn't walk. And finally, I just gave up and went to lie down, to just chill out. And I had on my little dresser in the, my, my space in this meditation center. There were little cubicles that they had uh, a picture of uh, Neem Karoli Baba, I've mentioned from time to time, who's very kind of, uh, he's my, my a main inspiration that makes me see the, the lightness of things. And he was smiling back at me with this twinkle in his eye saying, hmm, we're getting pretty freaked out, aren't we? And in a moment, as I saw the, the play and the drama that I'd created for myself, it, was, it just broke the whole bubble. And I got so excited. I couldn't wait to tell my teacher that I'd conquered doubt. <laughs> I did it. I conquered doubt. And between then and the interview, which was unfortunately not 10 minutes from that point, <laughs> but rather quite a few hours, I went through every mind space and, you know, from exhilaration to crashing to frustration to somewhat more perspective, but then confusion again. I just was everywhere. And I went to the interview, and Joseph said, so how's it going? And uh, I just sighed, completely exasperated, totally innocent. <sighs> it's always changing. He said, that's it. You got it. I said, oh yeah, you keep on telling us that, don't you? <laughs> it's always changing. Oh, I think I get it. And I've had to get it over and over and over and over for the last 33 years. Yeah. Not that 
you don't get it, but it just comes in deeper and deeper and deeper. So there's less and less and less of a surprise. When you're sitting, besides just noticing the breath or being with whatever your experience is, what you're also noticing is that experience is continually changing. This is the way it works. <clears throat> and it's the way it works in our life, too, that all of our relationships change, all of the people that we love go. It's part of our curriculum. And still, we can get upset. There's a famous uh, story about Marpa, one of the great Tibetan teachers in the Kagyu tradition, who, um, whose son died. And there he is plowing the fields, and he's crying. And his students come up and say, oh, master, why are you crying? You've told us so many times that everything is just an illusion. It's all an illusion. Why are you crying at the death of your son? And he says, it's all an illusion, and the saddest illusion of all is the death of one's child, and so I cry. doesn't mean you stop being human. The feelings are felt, but the, the understanding underneath it can integrate the sadness. And that's what deepens our connection, our compassion for this predicament that we all share. This is Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. If you're holding on to anything, you'll suffer. And as you can open up and allow and open up and be with things as they are, we actually wake up to the truth. This is favorite poem by Dana Falls called Allow. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado, a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak. Fear, fantasies, failures and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. <clears throat> Ramdas, also one of my great mentors and inspirations when he um, uh, got his stroke which was I think 96 or 97 uh, he went through a period where it was really really hard after having this gift of 
of gab and being able to mesmerize crowds. And he then lost his ability to speak uh, and to speak fluently. And uh, we had a um, we had a day long at Spirit Rock for him um, after the stroke, and he gave a, con a a talk very haltingly, and it uh, it was beautiful. It was very moving. But after the after the talk, I I went up to him and I said, "Hey, uh, how how you doing?" And he was. Uh, this is shortly after he, it was one of his first public appearances, and he said, can't do it anymore. And he was really sad. And I said, oh, it was so inspiring. It was just so, so moving. He said, no, I can't do it anymore, uh, like I did, <laughs> saying it haltingly. And we could, I, I just felt, you know, it was, it was quite moving to see somebody that you, that you love so much feeling sadness. It took him a little while to integrate what happened, but um, all of his practice bore fruit because he is actually in a better space than ever. He's still, his, his speech has come back quite a bit. It's still halting. And now he just has people wait in the spaces and meditate. And uh, there's a softness and a depth of compassion and a wisdom that's brought him to another level. And he writes about this in uh, his book, Still Here, uh, which is about aging and, and uh, working with, um, with the body um, going through its stages of, of decay, old age, sickness, and death. He writes... I used to say I'm a golfer and a sports car driver, but now I'm just someone telling that story. I can't golf or drive anymore, and if I cling to that identity, I suffer. The stroke was like a samurai sword cutting apart the two halves of my life. I was full of fears about aging before that happened. But the stroke took me through one of my deep fears, and I'm here to report that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The stroke cleaned out some of the pockets of fear in a very profound way. It's happened, and here I am. I've grown closer to God than ever before. What more can I ask? So besides seeing how things change and not holding on to those former experiences, what we do as we're practicing is we find that we can, um, we can sit with it all. We can actually be with it all. That we can sit through it all and with it all. And we decondition our instinct to flee when things are tough. That this moment is actually quite workable. The resilience of the human spirit is amazing. And in fact, 
we find we have this capacity that we didn't know we had. How else could you find that you can be with your sorrows in such a direct way than to feel them? Oh, yes. And here it is, to hold it with compassion. How else could you find that you have a courage to be with your fears in such a direct way than to sit with it and know, here's fear. Wow, fear is intense. Wow, I can be with fear. I survived. I've survived every time before. I can be with this. This is just through direct experience, not theoretical. On one retreat, I had this experience where I was doing equanimity practice. Just letting things be in their own way and seeing that everybody's journey is just their own. Your happiness and hap or unhappiness depends on your, your actions, not on my wishes for you. And I would, in this one meditation, imagine different people and telling them that it's not up to me to save them, and it's up to them to just understand that we're creating our own reality, that karma is, is the basis of an unfolding reality. And I was doing a fine job, because it's a very profound thing to say, ah, you're the heir of your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. And to find that equanimity that says, okay, Whatever happens to them happens. Until my 10-year-old son got in the picture. And when that happened, it wasn't so easy. Oh, whatever happens to you will happen to you. You're heir of your karma. And in now the next hour, I thought of every awful thing that could happen to a kid. It was my clockwork orange sitting, as I say. Just every awful image. And the first 20, 30, 40 minutes was, oh, 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 not that. And as I just kept on sitting with it and sitting with it and seeing, oh, yeah. There's no getting around this. You have your own journey to make. And it was a very, it was a huge turning point in my relationship with, with my son. Just seeing, okay, I have to honor your journey. I've seen it. And I have to see it again and again and again. But somehow we start to decondition our surprise, our shock, and our holding on. This is the lion's roar that we can open up to every situation that in order to 
touch that place of courage, we have to let ourselves be vulnerable. I, I actually was just speaking with, uh, with Adam, who is now 23. He was 10 at the time of that, that equanimity uh, experience. And uh, he just finished sitting a, a retreat. He's really into this stuff, as I've mentioned here before. He, and he sat for a month uh, in Colorado with one of his, with one of his teachers, Reggie Ray. And uh, I said, uh, hey, so what was the retreat about? And he said, it was about fearlessness. And I said, oh, what'd you learn about fearlessness? He said, I learned that Vulnerability is the path to fearlessness. I said, oh, wow. Tell me more. And uh, as we talked about it, it was beautiful. As he was saying that he saw himself protecting from being vulnerable. You know, a 23-year-old guy likes to be tough, but that when he let himself feel his vulnerability, that he could hit the soft spot underneath, that spot that's really alive, that is honest and genuine and pure and uh, indestructible truth, as he said. You just have to let yourself feel it all and not be afraid to be vulnerable. This is refuge in the Dharma. This is how we find that we have this capacity to be with things. This is trusting in life, trusting in the natural unfolding of things, and trusting in our own abilities to, to meet it. And what's meeting it is not even ours. You know, we might think, oh yes, I'm going to find that place where I can do it. But really, what is it that's meeting the difficulties when they come? It's a wisdom, and it's a, an honesty, and it's a, an unconditional love that's not even ours. We can't say, oh, look at my pure awareness. Look at my unconditional love. We tap into something that's even beyond what we can take credit for. And in that, we can trust and allow ourselves to open up to life just as it is. This is... Um, passage I, I want to share from somebody who was very inspiring for me, uh, my friend Don Flaxman, who was, um, he was the president of the board at Spirit Rock. And um, a couple of years ago, he found out that he had uh, terminal cancer. And uh, I spoke with him for a while as he was going through this, and it was like he touched a place that was beyond fear. And as 
he, we were talking, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. He was, it was just something else was coming out of him, and it was like I was take, having a darshan. I said, hold on a second, Don. Let me, I need to get a piece of paper and uh, write down what you're saying, uh, because it was just this amazing wisdom and, and love flowing out of him. And uh, this is just a little piece of, of what, he was, what he said. He said, you know, I'm now in the richest period of my life. Now that I have less time, I'm more open than I've ever been. I'm amazed at how much joy is available just by smelling a pretty flower, seeing a hummingbird, or hearing a friend's voice. I don't waste my time complaining now. Expressing love and gratitude is the most important thing I can do now. <coughs> this is what happens after a lifetime of practice, that we touch something that is quite mysteriously deep, that's always here. And so I'll, I'll just uh, close with a poem about this place out of which the lion's roar comes. This is by Dana Falls, called Here. It's always here, the silent underpinning, the foundation beneath the foundation. When I reach deep enough into darkness, inside fear, self-doubt, aversion, or despair, there's something so intact, I almost miss it in my focus on brokenness. It's always here this ground of being. Like the water in which fish swim, it's easy to overlook the eloquence of truth. It's here, this guiding presence, this calm abiding stillness. It's here when I don't try to make life any more or less than what it is, when I stop trying to be right. It's here when I unclench my fists and breathe when I let go of the demand to make life smooth or easy. It's here, the oneness underlying multiplicity, the exquisite isness of everything. I could shout it from the rooftops, but it's true no matter what I say, and I know you'll find it in your own time, your own way, that precious moment when you choose to meet life exactly as it is. the lion's roar, choosing to meet life exactly as it is. So, we have a few moments if there's any, anything that might come up from that or questions, comments. on? Yeah, I think so. Just keep okay. going for it. So when you were talking about when you were talking about feeling different sensations like the bell after the meditation, how in Zen there's more of the wooden clackers mm -hmm. than like this dreamy sound we can follow and go with. 
it re it reminded me um, of an experience I had not too long ago, just last month when I came off of a retreat. Um, I was sitting with a lot of heavy feelings and sensations in retreat, not the whole time, but it was definitely there. I'm like, well, this is what I came for to see what's here and like, okay, <laughs> um, different from other experiences I've had. And when I came off retreat, I was really enjoying the sense world. Like I was enjoying hearing sounds, even if it was traffic and a lot of different things happening. I'm like, wow, all these things are just like happening and I can hear them all and it was in enjoyable. And I found myself really enjoying dancing, which I usually do anyway, but I went close to when I came off a retreat and uh, I closed my eyes, I was dancing and I um, wanted to see what it was like to do a meta practice as I was dancing and all of a sudden I was just like, I went somewhere, I was still there. Like I could feel what was happening and what was going on around me. But the music just sounded so good. I was like, oh man, like note to self, like this sounds really good and I'm going for it. And um, uh, I'm like, I knew I'd be looking for it. The next time I went out dancing, I'm like, I know I'm gonna be looking for this, which we're told like, be careful because you don't start seeking the same thing but is that the most to watch out for? Because I can feel enjoyment a lot and I'm not tuned out to sorrow or anger or anything like that. But at what, at what point should one watch out? Like I described it to a, a, a yoga friend of mine and uh, we're talking about meditation. I'm like, when it just feels so wonderful, almost just such a stony feeling, like it's like, wow, like this is good. And he was like, watch out for that. <laughs> and I knew I'm like, yeah, watch out for that. But at what point like uh -huh. to watch out for enjoying that? Uh-huh. Um, well, the, the near enemy, uh, are you familiar with the, uh, you know, the four, the four Brahma Viharas, uh, the near enemy of joy is, um, it's sometimes translated as exhilaration but it's where one gets spun out uh, can, be, can be one where you lose your, your center. But I'd say for the most part, just uh, watch out for the attachment when it doesn't happen. I think there's a difference between appreciating, fully taking in the experience and feeling the blessing of it, feeling the grace of it, feeling the delightness of it, the, the deliciousness of it, and saying, I want more. So if, you, if you're completely with it, and then as it fades, or if it's not there, that that's okay too, great practice. You don't wanna be putting on aversion onto sweet experiences. They inspire us, they touch us, we can be moved by life. You don't want to say, oh, I better not watch the sunset because I'll get attached. You know? <laughs> let, let, let yourself feel how, how beautiful it is. It's just appreciation is different than attachment. And getting spun out and saying, you know that feeling that we probably know where we just, this feels really good, turn up the amplitude, it'll feel better. 
let's go for it and you know, burn all the jets, it'll feel even better. More isn't necessarily better, but finding that point where it is really moving us and still being able to be present and centered, you know, that, that's, that's an art. So uh, may you have many opportunities to <laughs> explore Thank that. Okay, it's, uh, it's probably, it's time to, to end. So let's close with a, a loving kindness and just really um, acknowledge the work that you put in when you sit down and are willing to silently be with it all. And acknowledge the times that you're not able to be with it all. Just your humanness. There's nothing to be ashamed of. But just that intention to open up to what's really here. This is the lion's roar. Nothing you need to turn away from. It's all workable. Be here with this moment and send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I open up to my life fully. May I allow the sorrows and may I allow all the joys. May I share my love well and see my true nature. And then to extend these thoughts to everyone here and all beings in all directions. As I want to be happy, may all be happy. May all learn to open up to life as it is. May all share their love well and awaken to their true nature. And may our coming here together be of benefit to ourselves, everyone in our lives, and all beings everywhere. for your attention. Have a really great week. And uh, hmm, see you in a, a few weeks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.